All right, well, let's see who remembers this. He is risen. All right, thanks so much for being with us here uh, this Sunday at New City Church. You might be wondering, like, this isn't Easter, but you would be wrong. Today we get to celebrate the last week of the Gospel of Mark, which means that we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the life-altering, trajectory-changing event of what Jesus has done for us. And so I'm excited to do that with you here this morning, and I know what you're thinking, man, how am I going to survive without watching that Mark bumper video every single Sunday morning? I don't know how you're going to do it, but we've got a new series next week we're really excited about as well. But today we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which was a life-altering, again, trajectory-changing event for the people that were there and that witnessed it. And I think all of us have different things and times in our lives where we have experienced something. Maybe it was a one-time event. Maybe it was a season of life where certain things happen and you look back on and it changed your life forever. Uh, for me, I, you know, my kind of journey into ministry really, at least I kind of thought began when I was 19 years old. I lost my dad to a suicide and some other things happened that year, but obviously that was the, the biggest one. And so for many years, I was like, that was when a couple weeks after that, things changed. I thought maybe ministry is what I want to do. And what was interesting was that it, was like, it wasn't until like three or four years ago that kind of my path into ministry actually started before then. I didn't really realize that. And the reason I say that was because that summer was between my freshman and sophomore year of college. I was taking some summer classes because I was a music major at the time. So I was trying to keep up with the other classes. And I took a philosophy class, philosophy 101, basic studies, stuff that you have to do you know, to graduate. And I took that class and it ended a week before my dad died. And what was interesting was I loved the class. Like I actually did all the reading. It was really challenging. The professor was a pretty hardcore atheist, but, but I loved it. And I was like, oh, this is really engaging. It's really great. And then because of that, through a series of events, you know, my dad died, various things happened that summer. And so I emailed that professor and I was like, hey, I know semester starts in a couple weeks. Is there any way that you can get me into some philosophy and religion classes and kind of help me change my schedule around, which he did. Right, so that summer, again, changed my life. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Various things happened, and now we're here today because of it, and uh, it, it changed my life. And today, we are looking at something, again, that changed the lives of the people, of the followers of Jesus, that radically changed the trajectory-changing event where Jesus rose from the dead, and everything else was different because of that. And I think it's also significant because one of the things that's really fascinating in my experience when it comes to Jesus and Christianity, all these things, is that we don't often consider what happened to Jesus. Uh, when I talk to people who aren't followers of Jesus, it's kind of like, oh, Jesus was a good guy, then he kind of died. Fascinatingly enough, when I was an undergrad, I took a few classes on Christianity, and it was like, whenever we studied Christianity, we would get to the death of Jesus, and then it was like, and then that was it. And I was like, oh, listen, I know you don't believe this stuff happened, but it is like what the religion teaches, so shouldn't we study like what, after he, what happens after he died, right? And so that's the question we have for us, before us this morning is this. What happened to Jesus? What actually happened to Jesus? And why is it that all these people changed their lives dramatically because of it? What happened to Jesus is what we're looking at this morning. And so uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn, uh, turn to Mark chapter 15. If you don't, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We are in the last week of our series through the gospel of Mark. The last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus put on trial by the Jewish religious leaders, um, as well as the Roman authorities. We have seen him crucified. And then last Sunday, we saw that he died. But of course, we know that isn't the end. And so we're in Mark chapter 15. I'm going to just start a few verses ahead in verse 37 to kind of catch us up to where we are. And we're going to see what actually happened to Jesus. It says this, Mark chapter 15, we'll start in verse 37. It says, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. 
Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We talked about that last week. And then when the centurion, the Roman guard who was running the crucifixion, um, when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw that he breathed his last, he also said, truly this man was the son of God. And then it says this, verse 40, there were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him, talking about Jesus, and many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. So here, what we see, interestingly enough, Jesus has all these crowds, all these people that had followed him, but when he dies, he dies relatively alone. You have a couple of women watching at a distance here, or one of them is Mary Magdalene. Uh, the other Mary here may or may not be Jesus' mother. Uh, not to get into it too, too big here, but the names that are listed here are actually Jesus' brothers. Mark tells us this in Mark chapter 6. The question is, why doesn't Mark just say that it was Mary, the mother of Jesus? Uh, it could be because Mark's original audience in Rome, the believers in Rome, actually had relationships with these brothers of Jesus. Um, and regardless of whether or not Mark is mentioning Jesus' mother here, John chapter 20 also tells us that Jesus' mother was on the scene. And so you have John, uh, Jesus on the cross, you have a few women, and then John's gospel also tells us John the disciple was also the only disciple that was there as well. But he has died. He is alone pretty much. And it all looks over. And then it says this, verse 42. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So it was a Friday. Their Sabbath, their holy day was on Saturday. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish legal council, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came boldly and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Now, again, it's just worth knowing it was Jewish custom to bury the dead before sunset. Uh, we even have written accounts in the first century of Jews who would ask for criminals, even people who had died on the cross, even people who had died and done things that were dishonorable, asking to take their bodies off the cross and bury them before sundown. And so here, it's Friday afternoon, which means it's Sabbath, and also the week of Passover is starting. So there's not much time. It must be done quickly. And so Joseph, not Jesus' father, but a different Joseph, Joseph, who was on the Sanhedrin, who condemned Jesus to death, goes and asks Pilate for his body. Now, here's the problem with that, and this is why this took courage for Joseph to do. The problem is that the Romans often led people, left people on the cross for a, a few days at least, or until their body decomposed, so that people could see their crime or their offense, and that they would not repeat it. And so Pilate does not have to grant this request, and it also could appear that Joseph here is a sympathizer of Jesus, which would not bode well for him. Now, the good news is Joseph is on the Sanhedrin, and so that might kind of, kind of dissuade any of those fears because it's like, well, he's on the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus to death. Um, so that might have helped him concern regardless, however. It took courage to go to Pilate on the eve of Passover and ask for Jesus's body. Now, again, lastly, we don't know much about Joseph. This is the only time that he appears in the New Testament. However, he does seem to be a devout Jew, as Mark says. He was desiring the kingdom of God. And in Matthew's gospel in verse 27, uh, chapter 27, and in John's gospel in chapter 19, they refer to him being a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And, of course, he goes boldly to ask for the body. Now, again, one of the things we happen to seeing over and over in the gospel of Mark, and what we see happening here is that faithfulness doesn't come where you expect. 
right? The Sanhedrin, they're all supposed to hate Jesus. And yet you had at least one, perhaps even more, that were secretly followers of him or sympathetic to what he was doing. Faithfulness, again, doesn't come from the people that you would expect. So he goes and asks Pilate for the body. And here's what happens next, verse 44. It says this, Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, again, the one who was overseeing all of this, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. So again, you have Pilate here who is surprised that Jesus has died so quickly. And so he has Jesus' death confirmed by a commanding officer who, again, if you were here last week, we talked about how this guy would have seen a lot of death in his life. He knows what dead people look like. And yet somewhat surprisingly, Jesus has died, and Pilate agrees to release the body. Perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps in part because, again, Pilate wasn't totally convinced that Jesus was guilty of what he was accused of. Again, he even tells us that he thinks the religious leaders were envious of Jesus, and that's why they wanted to have him arrested and crucified. But regardless, he allows Joseph to take Jesus' body. And then it says this, verse 46. After he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. So this would have been over his entire body. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. So Joseph gets the body, lays him in his, likely his family tomb. This was, would have been expensive. You'd have to be upper class to have a tomb that was cut out in rock. And what would typically happen is that you'd have this tomb cut out in rock. You would have this rock slab for a bed where you would place the body. And then after a while, you, you, you place the body in there. You put some linen on there. You put spices and you'd anoint the body. You'd roll a heavy stone or some sort of blockade to keep animals and things from going in and out of the tomb. And then after a while, once the body would decompose, what you would tra- traditionally do is you would take the body, you would take the bones, you would put them in a box called, uh, called, called an ossery, and you would then put the, take the box of bones and you would put it back in the tomb and you would leave it there. And that way you would have the kind of the slab bed for other family members that died, but ultimately your whole family on all their bones would be in this same tomb. And so again, John's gospel as well also tells us that there was a man named Nicodemus who met Joseph there with spices and oil to anoint the body. So again, if you've been with us, Mark's gospel is pretty quick on all these things. It doesn't always share all the details. And so John again tells us there was a man named Nicodemus who met him there to anoint the body. And we see that these two Marys watch where Jesus was laid. They see from a distance where they take Jesus's body. And then it says this, Mark chapter 16, verse 1 says, when the Sabbath was over, so now it's Sunday, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. So again, Mark points out these two women, they come on Sunday morning, which is after the Sabbath day. You have to imagine for them, for the disciples, the Sabbath was probably the most longest, most excruciating Sabbath they've ever been through. They can't do anything because it's the Sabbath, because pastors are going on. So if they wait a full another day to do anything, and they come to anoint Jesus's body. Now, of course, the question is, why would they do that if Jesus's body was already anointed? So Mark's gospel doesn't spend too much time on it, but the other ones do. We talk about how Joseph and, and, uh, and Nicodemus came to anoint and give Jesus's body spices and oils. Why would they come if that had already happened? Now, again, perhaps there's a couple of reasons. Perhaps they didn't know. I mean, they're seeing these things from a distance, so maybe they didn't know that this had already taken place. Uh, Perhaps they were coming to do it more meticulously or to do a better job because Joseph and Nicodemus would have had to have been very rushed 
in what they were doing, or perhaps they were coming to simply give Jesus double honor for who he is and all that he had done. Regardless, they show up, and what are they doing? They're coming expecting to see a dead body. That's what they come to expect to see. They come to expect to see a dead body like everyone else, right? In spite of what Jesus has said and done ahead of time, they expect Jesus to be dead. And also as a side note, I think it's just worth pointing out here that what we read in the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospel accounts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is it's not a fanatical or romanticized account at all. It's simply this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. This is the opposite of what you would expect from someone or from a group of people trying to get to convince people of some mythical reality that didn't take place. Now, of course, this doesn't prove the resurrection or any of these things happened. Of course, it doesn't prove it. But it is just worth noting that if they were trying to trick people or to convince people of something, they would probably share a lot of things. Say, this happened. This was amazing. We couldn't believe it. And instead, it's just this, and then this, and then this. And so what we see happening here up until this point is quite clear. What we see here is this, is that Jesus is dead and everyone responds accordingly. Jesus is dead and everyone responds accordingly, right? Joseph wants to bury the body because Jesus was dead on the cross. Uh, The Romans confirmed his death before they took him down. Pilate, who is the governor of the area, who was over Jesus' trial, signs off on it. And then John's gospel says uh, that before they removed him from the cross, Nicodemus again came with oils as well to anoint the Bible. They wrap Jesus in cloth. They anoint the the body for for burial. And then these women come on Sunday with their spices and with their oils to also anoint the body. They all think, understandably, that it is over because Jesus is dead. He's dead, and everyone reacts how you would react if somebody had died. Now, I, just, I do think it's worth, fat, worth, worth us considering, particularly if you're here this morning, and you would say you're a follower of Jesus, right? And you say, yeah, he died, but you know what happens. You know that he rose from the dead. You know that he's done all these things for us. And yet, if we're being honest, I think uh, a thing for us to consider or something for us to think about is this. Knowing that Jesus died but rose from the dead is this. Is in what area in our lives... Do we functionally act as though Jesus is dead? What area in our lives do we functionally act as though Jesus is dead? Because that is what is happening here. What area in our lives do we functionally, you can go to the next slide, act as though Jesus is dead? So all these things, we know he rose from the dead, we know he's over sin and death and all these things, but in our lives, we know like intellectually he's done it, but we're not always sure what this looks like practically. So for example, for us, perhaps... You have given up praying for this person that you've prayed for for years because nothing has happened, and it just seems like God can't or at least God won't do anything for now. Or maybe you've had an addiction or a long-term struggle that you've tried all these things and, and nothing seems to work, and so you have resigned yourself to the fact that this will always be how it is. I will always have this problem. Or perhaps maybe you're a little bit older and you have a desire or a pull or you believe that you believe God gave you years ago, but it never came to fruition. And so you think because of your age, well, it is what it is. You know, my time has passed. I can't do anything about it now. Or maybe you stopped asking God to move maybe in a powerful way in your life or in someone else's life because it didn't work out. Or you didn't get the job that you worked so hard for. And so you, your life has not panned out, at least to this, to, to this point in your life, as you had hoped. It is so easy for us in various aspects in our life, even though we know intellectually, intellectually that Jesus rose from the dead, that he conquered sin and death in our behalf, and that he can do the impossible. We can still functionally have areas in our life where we act as though Jesus is dead. And that's what's happening here. 
And so here's what it says next. In Mark chapter 16, verse 2, it says this. It says, Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they, being these two women, went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. So again, what happens Sunday morning, it's sunrise. They can now go about their lives and their duties, do the things they want to do. They get these spices and oils, and these two women head to the tomb. Of course, they're worried, however, that they're not going to have anyone there to move the stone for them. They need some men who can move this large stone. Now, you might say, well, where were the disciples? Like, why didn't some of the disciples come with the women? They could have easily done that. Well, we also know in John chapter 20, it tells us that on this Sunday, that the the, the disciples of Jesus were locked in a room of Jerusalem for fear of the Jews, right? They had killed Jesus and that they, they were now concerned that because they did this to Jesus and that they knew that we were his closest adherents and followers, what are they now going to do for us? So they're in hiding. They are scared, but these women are now going to the tomb and they're concerned how they're going to actually access Jesus's body. But very strangely, the stone had been rolled away. And then verse five, it says this, when they entered the tomb, They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. So these women come in. They're kind of like, what's going on here? They see a man dressed in white. The other gospels tell us that this was an angel, which of course makes sense because their immediate reaction is to be alarmed or afraid. And every single time in the, in the, in the Bible, when someone experiences the presence of God or an angel, they're immediately terrified. They immediately think, oh, I'm not holy, I'm not worthy. And so they are afraid to be uh, in, in the presence of this angel or of this person. He tells them what they do not expect, that Jesus is not here that he has risen. And these women, who again, Mark has been gone through meticulous notes to let us know that they have seen the crucifixion. They saw where he's buried. Now they are told that he has been risen. Again, it's just worth pointing out that for these women and for Mark, this event actually happened. That he has risen. That God has done what he promised. He has done what he said he would do. And then it says this in verse 7. They're kind of freaking out. They kind of can't believe what's happening. They're told that he's no longer here. It says this. The angel says to them, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So this angel tells this woman to go and tell the disciples and Peter. Why? Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but we'll mention it again, that Peter was the one on Jesus, the day that Jesus was arrested or the night that he had his, had his trial and his betrayal, uh, Peter was confronted as being a follower of Jesus. And what does he do? He denies him not once, not, denies knowing him not once, not twice, but three times. And on the third time, starts cursing the Lord and starts cursing Jesus. And then the rooster crows and he realized what he had done that these disciples who had all abandoned Jesus on the night of his crucifixion, they need to know that he is alive and they need to come and see him, especially Peter, who probably feels like the biggest failure out of all of them. 
says, I'm going to Galilee to meet them as I promised. Now, again, Galilee is significant because it's where Jesus called his first four disciples, including Peter. And it's where he told his disciples he would go after his resurrection. He talks about this in Mark chapter 14. Now, we do know that Jesus does appear to the disciples later on Sunday night on this actual day. But then after that, doesn't see them again until they are in Galilee, where he essentially recommissions Peter. Now, we're going to, in our new series next week, we're going to talk, we're going to kick it off talking about this recommissioning, but it's absolutely amazing and powerful. I'm really excited about it. Where he recommissions Peter and his disciples, but what's happening here? That everything is just as Jesus said it would be. Or put another way, Jesus did what he said, and everyone was amazed. Jesus did what he said, and everyone was amazed. Now, again, Mark's account is short and quick for all of this, but what do we see? That the women are amazed. You eventually find out that the disciples are amazed. Uh, later in Luke chapter 24, uh, later on this Sunday, Jesus is walking towards probably, presumably Galilee. He's on the road of Emmaus, and he's talking to two of his, not his disciples, but two of his followers about all these things, and they don't recognize it's Jesus for a while. And then once they recognize it was Jesus, it says that they were amazed. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul said Jesus appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection and before his ascension, and they were amazed, right? And of course, certainly it is amazing to witness a dead person not be dead. Like that has to be mind-blowing. But, and even though Jesus had said he was going to do this, it's impossible to conceive that this would actually be possible, Everyone has heard Jesus said he's going to do this, and yet once he does it, they are all amazed. And I can't, I can't help but stay, to take a step back and to ask and to consider in our own lives, how many of you, here, here's a question to consider, how many of you have felt God leading you to, to do something or to pray for someone or something that seemed daunting, and then God did or came through in a way that he promised you he actually would? Has that ever happened in your life? Just raise your hand. Don't be afraid. Put them up. It's okay if you can't think of a time that hasn't happened. Ever been a time in your life? Now leave them up for a second. Ever been a time in your life where God asked you to do something that came through? Now, if you, if you were amazed by that, leave your hand up. Right? This happens to all of us, right? And this is a room full of bright, smart people that you would say you have God, seen God moved powerfully in perhaps miraculous ways before in the past that he promised he was going to do or you felt strongly he was going to do it. And then what does he do? He does it and you still can't help but be amazed by all of it. That's what he does. And that's what Jesus did here. He did what he said. And everyone was amazed. And then it says this in verse 8. It says, they went and ran out from the tomb, that being the, they being the women, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were so these women are astonished, but also afraid. Uh, we know they're also excited because the also other gospels tell us that. There are other accounts. Right? They're likely bewildered over everything. Jesus was crucified, which had to be a traumatic event. He's no longer here. He has risen. You're trying to wrap your mind around all of it, all this amazing. You have this angel talking to you. You're afraid. You're excited. You're terrified. All these things are going on, and they don't know what to do. So they leave, and they don't tell anyone. Now, of course, we do know they eventually tell the disciples later in the day, at least, because some of the disciples, including Peter, run to the tomb. Or Mike could be saying that they didn't say this to anyone other than the disciples. They're told, afraid and terrified of what happens. They don't know what to say. And so they don't say anything to anyone else other than the disciples. Now, again, I think it's worth pointing out as we see what Jesus has done here, 
that just like the disciples and these women and all the followers of Jesus who are not expecting resurrection, you and I can do the same things in our lives. Right? If you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you're a follower of Jesus, we can do the same thing. Right? We can assume intellectually we know that Jesus has risen from the dead, dead and he can do the impossible. But for me, things are just what they are. The addiction is what it is. The unanswered prayer will always be unanswered. That person will never experience the love of Jesus in their life. In other words, what we see happening in our own lives as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus is this, is that Jesus did the impossible, but we don't think he can do the impossible for us. Jesus did the impossible, but we don't think he can do the impossible for us. Now, I just want to encourage you this morning or to affirm you, this makes total sense. Like, it makes total sense why you might be discouraged or why you might be defeated. And listen, there is no guarantee that God will do the things that we want. So even if you have a really good prayer or a really good desire that is clearly scripturally based, it is from the Lord, it would honor and love people, it would honor God. It doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. God knows things that we don't know. And maybe there are things happening that it's better, although we can't conceive of it, why the Lord isn't allowing it to happen, at least not yet. But from our vantage point, the question for us is, why do we assume that he can't? Or why do we sometimes assume that he won't? Right? Jesus did the impossible, but then we so often think he can't do the impossible for us. Now, what's fascinating about the disciples is you want to talk about what happened to Jesus. Well, I don't know if you know what actually happened to the disciples. All the disciples, well, I'll just read it. We got a list, so it'll be on the screen. Here's what happens to all the disciples eventually and how they ended up dying. Here's how they died. Peter, the leading disciple, was crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy to die in the same manner of his Lord. And so when he was going to be crucified, he asked to be crucified upside down. Andrew was beaten and whipped and tied, not nailed to a cross where he hung for two days. So every time you were crucified, you were hung with ropes to the cross, but you weren't always nailed. And so if you weren't nailed, you also would survive a little bit longer. And so that's what happened to Andrew. James, the son of Debedee, was killed with a sword. John was the only disciple who wasn't killed. He was actually tortured and bur burned alive with oil, but survived. And then he was exiled for the rest of his life. And towards the end of his life, is where he writes Revelation in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the New Testament. Philip was beaten, then thrown in prison, then crucified. Bartholomew is the one who replaced Judas, was either crucified or skinned alive and beheaded. Either one of them. Not, not, that's not great. One of those things happened to Bartholomew. Thomas was speared to death. Matthew was stabbed to death. James, son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Matthias was burned to death. Thaddeus was either clubbed or axed or crucified. So he was either beaten horrifically or crucified. And the apostle Paul, who was not an original 12 disciple, but ended up writing over two-thirds of the New Testament, was beheaded in Rome in the mid-60s AD. Now the question is why? The question is why? What happened to the disciples where the day after Jesus is crucified, what do they do? They lock themselves in a room because they're terrified of what could happen to them. Or what happens to the disciples a week later, and we're going to read about this next week, when they're fishing back doing what they used to do before they followed Jesus because they're still not sure what to do with all of this. What happened from these group of men who were often getting it wrong as they're following Jesus, often following short and then going to hiding? 
What happened to them that caused them to give their life to proclaim that Jesus is Lord? Not the Caesar, not these various false gods, but that Jesus deserves our allegiance because they wouldn't stop saying that he had risen from the dead and we saw him. What happened? Something changed for them. Something changed for them. Now, for us, this doesn't mean as you reflect on this that you need to uh, become a martyr yourself or that you need to quit your job and become enter into full-time vocational ministry, but it can't mean nothing. It can't be nothing. And so often, as I said in the beginning, when I have these conversations, and it's not a guilt thing or anything, but I have these conversations with people who are not yet followers of Jesus, and then Jesus was a great guy who was awesome, but they don't say, we don't spend any time thinking what actually happened. Because regardless of what you think about scripture or anything else, if Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. And that's where we start. We don't start with who wrote what, or we don't start as how old the earth is, or what is it going to look like when Jesus, that's not where we start when he comes back. We start with what happened to Jesus. And here's what happened. Jesus rose from the grave, and it changed the trajectory of everything. He rose from the grave, and it changed the trajectory of everything. The gospel, as we see it in this text, is simply this, that he is not here, that he is risen, right? He is risen. All right, now let's act like we're one of the disciples, okay? He is risen. That is what happened, that the God became a man. He took on flesh. He bore our sins, our condemnation, our shame. He lived a sinful life. He became our redeemer, our sacrificial lamb in our place so that you and I can receive the grace and mercy of God. He has changed the trajectory of everything, and he can change the trajectory for you. Again, look back into what it says in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, when the, when the angel tells the women to go and tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter, the one who blew it, who lied to Jesus, who let him down, who feels like he is not worthy of Jesus' grace and redemption. What does God want Peter to know? You need to come. And listen, I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you walked in here with. I don't know what this last week or month or year or day looked like for you. But you need to know that God is saying, you need to come. You need to experience this. You need to know that God loves you. And maybe you've been with us for a while, and you know that God's been pulling on your heart and on your mind. Today might be the day that you accept his grace, that you repent, which repent means just being honest with who Jesus is, and you allow him to be the Savior and Lord in your life. And if that is you, here's what I would encourage you to do this morning. I would encourage you to text NCC Baptism to 97,000 so that you can take your next step to publicly proclaim what Jesus has done to you eternally. What's fascinating in the New Testament, particularly if you read the Gospel of Acts, is that you have people who know nothing of Jesus here, repent, and are baptized. They don't have to have all the questions answered. They don't have to have everything figured out. They don't have to ha live the perfect life. All they have to say is that I was dead, and this man made me alive. And that's all that baptism is. So maybe some of you today need to allow Jesus to change your life. Listen, not you change your life, not you white knuckle it, not you try really hard and then pray and then give and come to church for a few weeks consistently and then maybe God will love you that right here, right now, Jesus is saying, I want you to come. Maybe for you this morning, you are a follower of Jesus and you need to, again, trust and believe that Jesus will move. 
Uh, maybe that you need to not give up on the promises that Jesus has for you, either in Scripture or what you believe He is leading you to do through the power of His, uh, the power of His Holy Spirit. Maybe you today need to have the courage. You need to ask the Spirit to give you the courage to follow Him. Maybe you today need to join a community of people to encourage you in your walk with Jesus. So as we said, groups start today, this week. You can text NCC groups to ninety-seven thousand to get into a group. If you want to connect with other people to encourage you as you stumble and fall and imperfectly follow this Lord who perfectly laid his life down for you. Listen, Jesus rose from the grave and it changed the trajectory of everything. The God who has come has inaugurated his kingdom and allowed us to partake in it, not because we tried really hard or we dressed a certain way or we said certain things or we went to the right school or we make enough money, but in spite of us, no matter who we are or what we've done or where we have came from, can experience the grace of God because he is not dead. He is 